All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your Word. We're thankful for the fact that you have given us the written Word and the living Word. And it is the living Word that explains you to us through his life and through his death on the cross. We get a visual visual training aid there for understanding what love is and understanding the horrors of sin and the necessity of a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the sin penalty. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us and to understand that there's more to life than that which we see. There's more in the universe than the that which uh, we are aware of physically, and that we come to understand that our lives are part, part of a broader uh, angelic conflict and coming to understand the dimensions of that conflict as it intersects with human life and human history. And Father, today as we study your word, as we come to understand some doctrines related to demonism, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're approaching another lesson that Jesus has for the disciples in Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. So turn with me there, if you will, and we'll spend most of our time there, although we may flip back and forth to the passage in Mark. Matthew chapter uh, 17, verses uh, 14 uh, down through 21, focuses on a specific lesson. This lesson is not directed toward demon possession or demonism, although that's the occasion for the lesson. The lesson is about faith. The lesson is about the fact that there has been a, a lack of faith on the part of the disciples in the attempt to deliver this young boy from demon possession, and they have been complete failures. And so Jesus is going to rebuke them, as well as the entire generation at that time, for their lack uh, lack of faith. So the focal point of this lesson is on the importance of faith, even though we have to spend some time talking about uh, the issue of demonism and demon possession, because lots of questions always come up about that. So what we've seen in the previous section is that Jesus has been, since his confrontation back with Herod Antipas back uh, several chapters ago, he's been moving around the area of Galilee. He has uh, briefly entered Galilee a couple of times. He headed up north to Tyre and Sidon where he had ministry to the uh, Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman there, and healed her daughter also demon possession, then he came back down to the opposite side of the Galilee, the area today that we refer to as the Golan Heights. That was Gentile territory. This was the same area where he had cast the demon, uh, the, the legion demon, out of the uh, demoniac, as described uh, previously back in, uh, back in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 10, and uh, which is a great paradigm for understanding demon possession, and then he had gone from there with his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, where he sort of culminates his his lesson to the disciples, what he's been doing in, in terms of training them with his uh, question there, where he talks to, uh, asked them, who do men say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered that question correctly. Uh, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. After that statement and his interchange with Peter in relation to to the cornerstone and that he was going to build his uh, church, first mentioned a church, 
on this rock, referring to himself. He then began to train the disciples. Now, I want to try to put this together for you because what we see at the end of chapter uh, 16, starting in verse 21, is a shift. And that shift is to begin to prepare the disciples for the for his coming uh, arrest, sub, uh, crucifixion on the cross, death, uh, burial, and resurrection. Verse 21, we read from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is because uh, following that event, which is up here in the area of Caesarea Philippi, then from there they went over to uh, the Mount Mount of Transfiguration, and now they're headed back down to this area of Galilee where they reunite with the disciples. Now there's debate as to where the Mount of Transfiguration is. Um, one place is up here by Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, which is this ridge line indicated here. I tend to think it's probably down here, although uh, the indication from Luke is that they they have to go travel overnight, camp out along the way before they reunite with the disciples. So it very well could be in the north. Uh, there's the Bible doesn't say wh- where it is, so we're just we're just sort of uh, sort of guessing as to where it was. But if you look at Matthew 17, at the end of the section we're looking at this morning. In verses 22 through 23, what does Jesus say? He says, after this, now while they were staying in Galilee, so they've had this little episode we're going to study this morning, Jesus says to them, he's continuing to teach them and prepare them for his death, burial, and resurrection. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now, the reason I point that out is it shows that what happens in verse 21 as we follow the thought flow of Matthew is Matthew is beginning to show that Jesus is preparing them for what's going to happen when he's crucified, he's buried, and he's, and he's going to rise from the dead. And they just don't get it. They don't even get it after the crucifixion, not until they physically see the resurrected Jesus will they get it. But it's that preparation. So all of this is involved in training. And this is how Jesus is training his disciples and teaching them. And he's taking them through these sort of uh, uh, outdoor classroom, hands-on situations to come to understand a few things. So what we read in Matthew seventeen fourteen is when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down, kneeling down to him and saying, "Now Luke adds something to this in Luke nine thirty seven. Luke says, "Now it happened on the next day." Now in each of the uh, gospel, the synoptic accounts that describe Jesus going up on the Mount of Transfiguration with, with uh, Peter, James, and John, we see that on the way back, they ask him a question, which we looked at last time about, "Well, what about Elijah?" Because we're expecting Elijah to come. In other words, they were asking, as we saw last time, what about the kingdom? Is this postponed? And remember, in Matthew 12, Jesus is Jesus casts a demon out of a man who's it's caused him to be uh, deaf and mute, deaf, unable to speak. And the the um, Pharisee said that he did it in the power of Satan, in the power of Beelzebub. That's the baptism against the Holy Spirit. And that was when Jesus announced that, that, that judgment was going to come on that generation because of their unbelief, because of their uh, blasphemy against God, the Holy Spirit. And at that point, he no longer offers the kingdom. Now, what the issue was there is the Pharisees still said, well, give us a sign. They've been given sign after sign after sign, and they just reject it. And so this is the background for understanding this event here in uh, when they come down off off of the mountain. So they come down. They've had to camp out somewhere along the, lot, along the way. And then Mark gives us some dramatic descriptions of what goes on. Mark sometimes is the briefer of the uh, writers of the Gospels, and here he's got the longest account. And in Mark 
He says, and when he came to the disciples, so as Jesus is coming down, he sees that there's this huge crowd with the disciples, and they, they, they're having, the, this is the nine that have been left behind, and that they are having some sort of disputation with the scribes. Now, what's happened is the four of them have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They have heard the voice of God. The three disciples have seen the, his glory as, it, as he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've had a foretaste of the coming of the kingdom. They have been in almost a perfect environment on top of the mountain. That's why Peter said, Lord, let you stay up here. Let's not go back to the devil's world. And uh, so now they come down, and immediately they're in the valley. of. They've gone from the mountaintop with God. Now they're in the valley with the demons. And so they've come down, and they're confronted with this young boy who's demon-possessed, and they're confronted with these religious arguments and the conflicts, and there's this huge multitude, and everything is just stirred up. We've got to note that contrast between that that time of peace and almost perfection on the Mount of Transfiguration, and now just the clutter and the chaos and, and, uh, of the of the world that they've come into. And then, as what's happened is that Jesus has taken his disciples through uh, these two training sessions. He's taken the honor students James and John and Peter, and taken them up to their advanced training up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other guys are left without Jesus, and we see what happens when Jesus is gone is they're lost, and they're just in failure. They, they, they have forgotten everything that's happened already. Back in, in Matthew 8 and Matthew 10, especially Matthew 10, they're sent out, and part of their mission is to cast out demons, which they do. They cast out demons. They're, they do it in the name of Jesus. They understand what the instructions are, that they are to do this in Jesus' name by his power and not in their power, that their efforts. See, that was a contrast to what happened in the Jewish culture at that time. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 19 talks about uh, these sons of Sceva who are Jewish exorcists who are incapable of casting out a demon because they're doing it through the world's systems of rituals and incantations and all of these other things, and, and they just can't, can't do it. And Paul confronts them with that because they're not doing it in the name of Jesus, and Jesus, that's the only name where a demon can be cast out. And the other important thing to note from that episode is that this word exorcism, uh, probably a lot of you have seen the film The Exorcist and some of its uh, subsequent, you know, Son of Exorcist and the next Exorcist and Exorcist Redo and over and over again because it makes Hollywood a lot of money. But exorcism is not a term for what Jesus or the disciples do. They cast out demons. It's always the same word, ekbalo. It's never the word exorkizo. Exorkizo in the Bible, exorcism, is what... The Jewish unbelieving exorcist tried to do. It's what the pagans do. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus just cast out the demons. The disciples just cast out a demon and they do it in the name, in the name of Jesus. But these nine have been left behind and this man has brought his demon possessed son to them and they're impotent. They can't cast out the demon and what we learn from it is because they apparently in this disputation with the scribes have fallen into the trap of trying to do it the way the Jewish exorcist did it. There's no faith. Jesus rebukes them because he says, you have no faith. And um, and that's the failure. They're no longer trusting in Jesus. They're trying to do it some other way. So that gives us sort of a framework of what's going on at this particular time. So Jesus comes up, and there's just this huge hubbub. There's a huge multitude there, and some see him, and they break away from the crowd, and they run towards him, and they greet him, and they expect him to solve the problem. But what we have to remember is this is the same kind of crowd that he's been dealing with all along, and they're looking to him for a free lunch, uh, feeding the the uh, 5,000. They're looking to Jesus to uh, uh, do these miraculous things and just kind of encourage uh, them and excite them, but, but they're not trusting in him as the Messiah. 
And they're also kind of enjoying the conflict that goes on between uh, Jesus and the religious uh, religious leaders. So what we read here is that verse 15, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, running to him, greeted him, and he asked the scribes. Notice he doesn't ask his disciples. He turns to the scribes and he says, what are you discussing with them? That is the disciples. What is the issue here? Because he knows that these scribes, like the Pharisees and Sadducees that have come, their job is to create this confrontation with his, with his disciples. Now, Matthew 17, 14, going back to Matthew, says that now introduces, right after it introduces Jesus' return, he doesn't give that other detail that Mark gives, says that when they returned, they came to the multitude, and a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, see, Matthew isn't concerned about the conflict with the scribes, but Mark gives us more color, more background, uh, Matthew just cuts to the real issue, which is this man and his uh, demon-possessed boy. It says he came and he kneeled down to him. Now, the word there that's kneeling is this Greek word, ganupateo. What we might expect is a different word that's the word that we normally translate as worship. But this word just refers to kneeling down. It doesn't have... Uh, overtones of worship, it, it would be just expressing what someone would do out of respect to someone that they believed was superior, or just showing showing respect and maybe even just pleading to someone. And obviously, he thinks that the man does think that Jesus can uh, deliver his son. For this is what he says in verse 15 of Matthew 17. He says, "Lord, have mercy on my son." For he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the water, into the fire, and often into the water. Now we have to spend a little time on this verse just understanding uh, what is going on here. Uh, He pleads for mercy. Now I don't think at this point that he is a believer in Jesus as Messiah, because that happens in the next verse or two. But he is pleading for mercy. And he describes his son here, uses the Greek word huios, which indicates an older boy. Now, I'm making a point about that because when Jesus is going to ask him, well, when did this begin? And he uses a different word, a word that can mean a child or even an infant. And that's important to make a, a couple of observations about demon possession. So he cries to the Lord, have mercy on my son. And then the translation, and most translations do this, translate the the Greek word as an epileptic. Now, we don't think of epilepsy as a specific disease that is treatable by medication, and it is. The Greek does not identify this as a disease. Epileptic is a poor translation because it's making a medical diagnosis on a circumstance that, where the Scripture does not identify this with a medical diagnosis. The Greek word is... Uh, seleniazomai, and it comes from the root noun selene. And selene was the Greek goddess of the moon. And what you'll find in some, some translations is they'll say that the boy was moonstruck. And that's, that is a good translation. It's not a, a, this isn't a, he doesn't have epilepsy. He's hap, something is happening to him. And they just say that he's moonstruck. It's just a generic, generic term. Now here is a, a carving of um, or, uh, of uh, Selene. She's the Greek goddess of the moon. When her she was named in Latin by the Romans, her name was uh, Luna, and the the root of that is where we get our term for the moon, uh, lunar. But the idea of being moonstruck is something related to the effect of the moon on people came into English to describe a crazy person as a lunatic. And the slang that developed from lunatic in England in the 19th century was to say that somebody was loony. And that's essentially what's going on here. They're just saying this kid's crazy. 
he's having these these psychotic breaks, he's having these convulsions, all these different things are happening, and we don't know what to do about it. He he's he's harming himself. Now if we look at Matthew seventeen as well as comparing it with Mark 9, we see that there are a number of things that are described here. He falls into the fire and often into the water. Mark says he has a mute spirit. Also says that whenever or wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. There are ten characteristics that are given to describe what happens uh, to this boy. He frequently falls into the fire, and he frequently falls into the water. So whenever this spirit seizes him, he just goes into the convulsions. If he's next to the fire, he'll fall into the fire, or if he's next to the river, he'll fall in the water and possibly drown. Uh, it's, it's extremely dangerous. He's also unable to talk. It's described in both passages as a mute spirit, so he's unable to talk. And it also caused deafness. When Jesus addresses, is addressing him, Mark says he addresses the deaf and dumb spirit. So here's a question. When Jesus rebukes him, the boy's deaf. He can't hear him, but the demon can. It's interesting commentaries go, well, who's Jesus talking to? And when he rebukes him, he's rebuking the boy, rebuking the father, rebuking the demon. Well, the boy's deaf. He says it's a deaf spirit, so the boy can't hear him. But the spirit can, so he's clearly talking to the spirit. He has uncontrollable seizures that come on at, at random times. He cries out. So when this happens, he will cry out. And he also foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he will become rigid. And then the demon says it departs with difficulty. So when he leaves, there's some sort of physiological consequence of that, and the boy just goes through more convulsions and, and, and screaming, and uh, when he leaves, it bruises him. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there's always a, a temptation among those who teach and talk about uh, demon possession as to try to identify two things. One thing that they try to identify is what is it that uh, that uh, is an occasion for people becoming demon-possessed? In other words, what kind of things can we get involved in that may cause us to become demon-possessed? I remember the first time I read a book on this, uh, was that had been published was a book called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey. Some of you have heard of Hal Lindsey. And uh, between the time that he wrote Late Great Planet Earth and time this came out, Hal went, went charismatic. And he really picked up a lot of charismatic ideas on spiritual warfare. A lot of you may not realize this, but the charismatic community has a has a very experience-based view of of spiritual warfare, and they believe Christians, a lot of them believe Christians can be demon-possessed, and so they get involved in just a lot of experiential things, and the more uh, extreme the charismatic movement, the more extreme their ideas. Well, I remember reading this book, and at the beginning, Hal is talking about somebody who had traveled in India and picked up some what would have been idols, brought them home, and then all kinds of mysterious things happened after they put these idols in their home. And it wasn't until they finally, some Christian said, well, the reason you're having all these problems is because you've got that little Buddha in your house, and you need to get rid of that. And so when they burned the Buddha in the fire, all the bad luck stopped. And you get these kinds of stories, this anecdotal theology that's not based on Scripture at all. But it's not unique to somebody like Hal Lindsey. He, he's in a very respected tradition. This goes back to the, to the early church and even into, into Judaism, where you have people saying this, these are the kinds of things that a person gets involved in. Well, one of the things that we should note is uh, uh, several times you have children in the Gospels who are demon-possessed. And with this young boy, for example, the words that are used to describe him are words that are used of a very young child, maybe just an infant, just out of babyhood. 
And he's not getting involved. He's not going home and playing with his Ouija board or getting on the Internet or searching for the local uh, witch coven. He's not reading his local horoscope every day or all of these other things that you find people say that you need to do in order to become uh, somehow connected to the demonic. There's nothing in the Scripture that ever identifies what the cause was of their demon possession. It's just the fact of their demon possession is mentioned. And in most of the cases, it's in areas dominated by Gentiles and pagans so that one element that, that we can clearly say is indicated by the Old Testament is those who are involved in pagan religion, which is demonic, uh, that would be one possible way that you would be open to the demonic, but not necessarily so. It's just just a possibility. Well, Different times down through the centuries, people have identified different uh, characteristics of how you can identify someone who's demon-possessed. That's the second thing. The first thing people ask is, well, what do you do to get, get attached to a demon? And second is, how, how would you know if somebody's demon-possessed? Now, let me preface this. You, I always hear people, many of us have probably made this statement before, statements like, well, well Adolf Hitler must have been demon-possessed or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Khamenei or whoever must be demon-possessed, or Saddam Hussein was demon-possessed, or some mass murderer must have been demon-possessed. And that's clearly within the realm of possibility. But I find that that's not a good solution. And the reason it's not a good solution is because most people opt for a demonic uh, solution or demonic explanation because they don't want to wrestle with the fact that a human being just living in the power of his own sin nature can be that evil. And yet the Bible is saying a human being without any help from Satan can be just as evil because the sin nature, the nature of sin, that nature of corruption and arrogance that we have isn't qualitatively any different from Satan's. Quantitatively it is. I mean, Satan and the fallen angels have a lot greater powers than we do. So they can give much greater, more powerful expression to their sinful rebellion against God than than we do. But we are just as capable of rebellion against God and horrible things all on our own. We don't need any help. And we don't need to go around blaming people. And and really, the Bible never gives us those kinds of examples of this is how you can tell if somebody's demon-possessed. But they they knew it from certain things that were manifested. Well, let's just look at some of these examples. In the 3rd century A.D., there was a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Huna, who said there were four characteristics of demon possession. If you walk around at night... All right, so if you've got middle-age insomnia, then, you know, maybe you're demon-possessed. Just just a thought. Spending the night on a grave, sleeping down at the local cemetery, uh, tearing one's clothes, and destroying what one is given. Now, I think any of these could apply to a host of teenagers on any Halloween at any, any given year, so that's not very definitive. Then in the 17th century, in the 1600s, Puritans identified a number of characteristics of demon possession. If you thought that you were possessed, okay, so you've had a little psychotic break and you think a demon possesses you, then you must be. That's experience-based, isn't it? Or if you lead a wicked life, well, that's awfully subjective. One person's wickedness is another person's not quite so bad. So uh, how do you define living a quick, wicked life? Or to be persistently ill. So if you are sick a lot, well, maybe you're demon-possessed. Some of us who, have, uh, who are prone to allergies and upper respiratory infections, well, who knows? Okay, uh, if you fall into a heavy sleep, like in the middle of Bible class, or if you're vomiting unusual objects like toads or serpents, worms, iron, stones, or even artificial objects like nails or pins or things like that. I won't call for any personal testimony here. If you blaspheme, if you use the Lord's name in vain, then you have maybe your demon possessed. If you make a pact with the devil, 
if you're troubled with spirits, if you think that, if you see things, uh, if you show a frightening and horrible countenance, I like that one. Now, we're not going to ask for volunteers what you see when you look in the mirror when you wake up in the morning, but you might think that's a frightening countenance. To be tired of living. Again, no personal testimonies here. I know there's at least a dozen people in this congregation that on any given day are just tired of living. They're ready for the rapture to occur. Uh, To be uncontrolled and violent. Or to make sounds and movements like an animal. So uh, these are all very subjective. Notice how different they are from Rabbi Huna's. Now, in the period in the Middle Ages from Rabbi Huna up through the uh, Puritans, there were a lot of other ideas and guesses as to what might make a person demon-possessed. When I took angelology and demonology under Bob Leitner, who's very solid on this topic, he had us so that we would be aware of it, read these little books by a, a uh, German uh, guy who was an exorcist, and, and he's, he was an evangelical. He wasn't necessarily charismatic, but he had a number of books out, and his name was Kurt Koch. And he said that uh, characteristics of demon possession involved cursing, grinding teeth. Some of you have that problem when you sleep. Uh, suicide, falling into a trance. If you emit a scornful laugh or you hear someone talking about the cross of Christ or the blood of Jesus, then that that person uh, possessed will always display evil and hateful expressions, especially if spiritual things are talked about. Unger, Merrill Unger, who was a tremendous, well-known Old Testament professor at Dow Seminary. You know if he had Unger's Bible Handbook. You may have seen Unger's Bible Dictionary. Uh, He wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on biblical demonology, which was excellent, and he had a great biblical argument there for why Christians could not be demon-possessed. But he got so many letters from missionaries and others who were basing everything totally on experience that he came out with another book on what demons could do to Christians and reversed himself, not based on exegesis or new word studies, but just on experience. That's the problem. When my book, Spiritual Warfare, came out, which is available here, you can order it off of the website. When we wrote that book, when it first came out, one of the book reviewers said, this is the only book currently in print that doesn't focus on, doesn't get its information from experience, but focuses just on what the Bible says. Now, uh, I mentioned Bob Leitner earlier. Uh, he's got a book called uh, uh, Satan, Angels, Satan, and Demons, which is also very good. In fact, quotes our book as well. Um, but Unger also claimed that a possessing demon will voice opposition to Jesus Christ. And yet, I wrote there, no possessing demon in any of the biblical cases speaks derogatorily or blasphemously about Jesus. In fact, most of these things that are given as characteristics are not mentioned in Scripture at all. And so people are just making it up out of their own imagination. And that has a certain salacious appeal uh, to lots of, lots of people. But even fairly decent Bible teachers today, well-known radio Bible teachers like Chuck Swindoll, uh, also fall into the experiential trap when they're studying the Scripture. This is from his little book, Demonism, which he wrote back in the 70s. And he asked the question, can a Christian be demonized? He says, for a number of years I questioned this. Notice he didn't use the word demon possession, because what happens is by avoiding that word and using the word demonize, which is a really perversion of the scriptural term, you can you can just drive all kinds of trucks of bad teaching and bad theology through that that vague term. It says for a number of years I questioned this, but now I am convinced it can occur. Now, what convinced him? Exegesis of the scripture or experience? That's always the question to ask. He says if a ground of entrance. Now, there's an interesting term. What is this ground of entrance, and do we see it in the Bible? If a ground of entrance has been granted the power of darkness, such as trafficking in the occult, do you think this little baby boy in Matthew 17 was trafficking in the occult when he was a 
when he was just an infant? I don't think so. Trafficking in the occult, a continual unforgiving spirit, a habitual state of carnality. He's a baby. He's always carnal. I know that's a shock to some of you parents, but they're not Christians. They're not born again yet. That's the only option they have is to live according to the sin nature. Okay? Uh, the habitual state of carnality, that's every unbeliever in the country. Uh, the demons see this as a green light. It's okay to proceed. Then he says, I've worked personally. There's this, always watch this. I've seen it personally. So what's your authority, the Bible or your interpretation of your own experience? I've worked personally with troubled, anguished Christians for many years. On a few occasions, I've assisted in the painful process of delivering them of demons. Notice, delivering Christians from demons. While present within the body, perhaps in the region of the soul, that evil force can wreak havoc with the life. Okay, so so see, what I'm pointing out here is de- so much of demonism and de- demonology is based on experiential ideas and not on what the Scripture says. Some of you have listened to Charlie a long time. Charlie went through this back in the 70s. I think it was kind of a vogue thing in the 70s for people to think that Christians could be demon-possessed. And I remember having a lot of conversations with Charlie about this back in the 80s, and then he read this little book called, uh, I forget what the original title was, but what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare when it first came out, and and we convinced him. Tommy listened to Charlie for many years, so Tommy and I wrote that book, and we finally convinced Charlie. He said, you know, you're right. You made, you made a better case. Now, we'll get to that in just a minute. So... Matthew six seventeen sixteen, the father says, I brought brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. This is the Greek word therapeuo, where we get our word therapeutic or therapy. And it's just a generic term for healing someone. So then Jesus answered, and Jesus is making a statement here in verse 17, where he is at really challenging the carnality, the spiritual rebellion of this generation. It's a generalized statement, and he is making this statement not about the disciples specifically or about the uh, Father specifically, but he is making this point about that whole generation. He says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, what's his point here? The point that he's making is that first word, faithless. It means to be unbelieving. They are not trusting in him. Now, I want you to keep your place there and go back to the Mark 9 passage, which is what I talked about about earlier. In verse 23, Jesus says uh, something something else. It's after verse 19 is where he makes this statement about a faithless generation. Uh, then they brought the boy to him, and he asked the father, how long has this been happening? In verse 21, he says, from childhood, and the word there indicates it could be as er- just early infancy, when he's just, a, just out of babyhood. So it, it, you can't imagine that he's been involved in these these different uh, things that people say would open the door to, to demonism. And so in verse 22, excuse me, in 23, Jesus, uh, in verse 22, he says, um, often he's thrown him in, into the fire uh, and the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, that's what he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then in verse 23, Jesus says, if you can, that first believe there, he's not saying if you can believe. He's, he's saying, if you can't, you're doubting me. You're coming to me, but you're not really sure that I can do this. What do you mean, if you can? That's, that's the thrust of, of Jesus' response there. And then Jesus says what? All things are possible to him who believes. So what are we talking about here? The focus of this isn't on the demon possession. That's the occasion. The purpose here is to say the issue is faith. 
This is where the disciples failed. This is where this generation is failing, is because they're not believing the promises of God. They're not believing the prophecies of God about the Messiah. They are failing to trust in God. And this man comes, and he's doubting. He's not sure. He's probably not, not, not even saved. And so Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think it's at this point he trusts in Jesus as the Messiah, knowing that Jesus can deliver that child uh, from the uh, demon possession. So the issue is faith. Now, this is interesting how this is fit together this week. If you were here on Tuesday night, uh, the last several Tuesday nights in First Samuel, I've been pointing out the failure of Israel at the time of Samuel to believe and trust in God. The result of that was that God brought divine judgment on the nation. The Ark of the Covenant was captured in battle. The Israelites were defeated in battle, and 30,000 were killed. And then uh, the Ark of the Covenant went into captivity among the Philistines, and God took care of himself just fine, and we're in the middle of studying that right now, and it's all quite humorous, but God took care of himself. But Israel went through 20 years of, of oppression from the Philistines, economic collapse. Uh, it was a horrible 20 years, but it was... It, was a, it wasn't the first time they'd gone through this. They'd gone through this four or five times under the judges, as long as 80 years that they had gone through the, this kind of divine judgment. So the 20 years is just a short time, basically, compared to, to the others. And it is during this time that God is teaching them that they need to trust in him. Then we looked at Peter, 1 Peter 1, eight on uh, Tuesday. I mean, on Thursday night, where Peter's talking to his readers about how they can be delivered from the trials, the testing that they're going through in this life, not just waiting for eternity. And he talks about part of the, 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 their spiritual life is to focus on Jesus, whom having not seen you love, though now for, or though now you do not see him, yet what? By believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy. Believing, trusting on a day-to-day basis, the faith rest drill, this is the focal point of the Christian life and Christian growth. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples and demonstrating to all of Israel uh, through the deliverance of this child from this uh, demon is that if you will trust in him, he can conquer any and every problem that they have. For the nation, he can deliver them from spiritual oppression, which is what he talked about, binding the strong man back in Matthew chapter 12. He can do the same thing for every single person he, that trusts in him. He can provide spiritual deliverance from the power of the sin nature. It's understanding the sufficiency of God's grace and the need to trust him radically and exclusively. So Matthew 17, 18, Jesus rebukes the demon. He just speaks to the demon. Notice, Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus doesn't fast. I'm just making that point as we come along. He just commands the demon, and the demon came out of the child. That's the word ex erkomai. And that's important to understand because people get into this using this word daimonizomai, which is a participle they want to translate as demonized. And they say, well, that just can mean anything from demon influence to demon possession. And they're correct. That's a general word. But what gives specificity to what demon possession is are the other verbs. When someone is demon-possessed, the demon has to come out of them. What does that mean? That means there's a demon in them. It doesn't just mean they're being influenced by a demon. It's that a demon has entered into their body and is controlling their body. And the so we see these words that a demon goes into somebody. That's the Greek word ace erkomai, to go into or enter into. And then to get rid of it, the word that is used is ekbalo, to cast out, which indicates that the demon goes out, and that is described as ex erkomai. So those words are very specific. Now, a question that always comes up, and we'll wrap this up pretty quickly, is the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And as I quoted earlier from Chuck Swindoll, and he's just an example of many, I'm not picking on Chuck, um, 
There are many who have taken this experiential route and say, yes, I've met with numerous Christians and I have enough, basically what they're saying is I got enough knowledge to know that they're demon possessed. But the reality is we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And every believer is indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ as well as the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 3.19. Now, historically, this argument was presented this way. Major premise, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Minor premise, if the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in the same location as, the, as a demon or Satan. Conclusion, no Christian can be demon-possessed. The problem is with the minor premise. The minor premise isn't specific enough because there are examples where Satan and the sons of God, the fallen angels, come into the presence of God in the throne room of God in heaven. And so people have used that to say, see, that minor premise doesn't work. Well, here's the issue. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, when Paul says that we are the temple of God, he uses a specific word. He uses the Greek word naos, which refers to the holy of holies. Not the whole temple precinct, but the holy of holies. Unclean people can go into the heros, the outer courtyard, but no one unclean can go into the naos. The naos is the inner temple, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. Nothing unclean can go in, or if an unclean human, if a priest were to go in unwashed, uncleansed, he would die instantly. That's why priests would go in, and they had bells on the bottom of their robes, and they had a rope tied to their foot, so that if something happened, if they committed blasphemy and they were struck dead by God while they were in the holy of holies, there's this rope that attached to their foot, and they could be dragged out. The principle is that every believer's body is transformed into a holy of holies for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. No evil or unclean thing, this is the revision of the minor premise, no evil or unclean thing can enter the holy of holies. No demon can enter the inner sanctum of God. It's made the argument more specific. Therefore, no demon can indwell a believer's body. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So, Jesus casts out the demon from this unbelieving child, and then the disciples take him aside, get away from the crowd, and they say, Well, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? They use the word ekbalo there. They understand the correct terminology. And Jesus says it's because of your unbelief. Notice he doesn't say because you didn't believe, and he doesn't say because you didn't pray and fast. I'm making that point because we've got this weird verse uh, in verse 29 and also in verse uh, verse 19 uh, of Mark 9. Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, that's the tiniest seed that we know of. He's just saying it just takes a little bit. You can move mountains. And that doesn't mean literal mountains. It is an idiom for doing something that is thought to be impossible, thought to be too difficult. All you need is a little bit of faith, and you can move mountains. Nothing will be impossible to you. He's training the disciples to trust in him during that time once he has ascended to heaven, and they're leading the church. So the issue is belief. Now, just briefly, this this last verse. Matthew says this kind can come out by nothing but by by prayer and fasting. That whole statement is probably not in the original. It's not in the oldest documents. Now, usually I go with the majority text. This is in the majority text. Mark, the Mark reading, some of the older manu, some some manuscripts added fasting there, but the Mark reading probably uh, you know said this comes out by prayer. Now, there's some problems with this. Just historically. Historically, by the third century, you had the rise late third late yeah late third century early fourth century. You had the rise of monasticism, where they're putting this emphasis on prayer and fasting as a means to get, manipulate God to do anything. It becomes a big deal. The center of monasticism is in North Africa, so if, so if somebody anywhere is going to add prayer and fasting to the manuscript, you would think it would be in North Africa. Well, the oldest manuscripts we have come out of Egypt in North Africa, which was the starting point of monasticism, and prayer and fasting is not in those, mas- those manuscripts. 
which is which is interesting. You would expect it to be there, not in the other ones. Uh, it's only in the older manuscripts, and it's in the majority majority of them. Uh, so external historical evidence is against it, but also internal evidence. Nowhere else in in Scripture does is prayer emphasized as the means of casting out a demon. In fact, when the disciples are sent out, uh, they are told simply to uh, cast the demons out in his name. So prayer is not referred to in any of the earlier uh, episodes in Matthew or in Mark. In fact, it's not mentioned in, in any, any of them. And fasting certainly isn't mentioned in any of them. And I've spent most of yesterday, I've searched this, researched this before, reading through a lot of new commentaries, Nobody takes this as being original, so it's it's not part of the original text. I'm I'm pretty sure on uh, for for a number of reasons. But the point here that Jesus is making is if we're going to get anywhere in our ministry and our spiritual life, if we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's done by faith. It doesn't take a whole lot of faith to get started. We just have to trust what the Word of God says. And the more we trust what the Word of God says, the more we're going to see God respond, uh, fulfill His promises, and our faith will be strengthened and our faith will grow. Many times I think we have to have a pr- utter a prayer like the Father. Lord, I believe, strengthen my faith. My faith needs to become stronger and the way our faith becomes stronger is, first of all, learning the Word of God so we know what the truth of the Word of God is, and then by walking by the Spirit with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and reflect on this, recognizing that we are in the midst of an angelic uh, rebellion, angelic conflict, and that, as Paul points out in Ephesians six ten and following, that our warfares ultimately against the principalities and powers, that is, these demonic forces arrayed against us. But we can't see them. The only thing that we know about is your word, and the only solution is to defend ourselves is to put on your full armor. And as we put on your armor, then you protect us. As we walk by the Spirit, you protect us and that you are the one who watches over us. And, and we know that we have no fear in our lives of demon possession because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Father, we pray that if there's anybody listening today that's never, or that's not sure of their eternal salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. He died on the cross He paid for our sins that by trusting in him alone, we have eternal life. We're not saved because we're good or because we do good things. We're saved because Christ's righteousness is ours at the point of faith in him. So, Father, we pray that you would make this clear to anyone who who is unclear about their salvation and that they would take this time to trust in you for their eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.